Cast. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 142 of the Burden and Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon, and the Burden and Command podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what The Leadership Phalanx does, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadershipphalanx.com. Now, today's guest is Mr. Paul Cowan. Uh, Paul is a relationship specialist who had a successful career in leading international advertising agencies, then opened his own agency. As a psychotherapist, he worked with individuals and couples and consulted with teams and organizations. Now he specializes in client relationships, and he works internationally to facilitate change between agencies and their clients. He co-founded the Client Relationship Consultancy and the Customer Relationship Consultancy. His new book is titled Connecting with Clients for Stronger, More Rewarding, and Longer-Lasting Client Relationships. And that's going to be pretty much the backdrop of the discussion that we're about to have. So if you've ever wondered, when I say on this show that leadership is just another relationship, well, Paul is going to really unpack that for us in here, and you'll understand more what I mean when I say that. So without further ado, I'm going to get out of the way, let that stinger play, and let you get in this outstanding interview with Paul Cowan. Paul, thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much for the invitation, Earl. Oh, man, I'm uh, very excited to, to get into this conversation uh, because I, I'm a big fan. Now, I haven't read the whole book, but I'm a big fan of, of your book, uh, Connecting with Clients for Stronger, More Rewarding, and Longer Lasting Client Relationships. Um, and as soon as I said that R word, I know my longtime listeners are like, here it comes, but I'm going to say it again anyways. Leadership really is just another relationship, isn't it? It really is just another relationship. It really is. And uh, there's no question in my mind that um, the essence of good good leadership uh, is about managing relationships uh, effectively, really effectively. You know, with teams to organize, um, whether they be internal teams or remote teams, uh, the notion of leadership always comes back down to, well, how are you motivating? How are you encouraging? How are you leading? And how are you guiding? And how are you enrolling your teams? And and that to me is the joy and the essence of leadership. No, I love that. Well, and so you kind of answered the, that kind of really first big question I ask. I want to ask it anyways and let you unpack it a little bit more. When you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you? What it means to me, I don't think about burden of command. Um, I think more about the opportunities of command and the and the emotional rewards of command. And I guess in particular what it brings up are the dimensions that are really important uh, when one is in command. And for me it comes down to emotional intelligence. It's, uh, I think, pretty well accepted uh that the higher the level of emotional intelligence of any leader anybody in command the greater the efficacy of the commander in chief uh or indeed 
anybody under the commander-in-chief uh, that happens to be leading a team or a group of individuals, and sometimes oneself, actually, for that matter. Um, and emotional intelligence can be thought of as, you know, made up of four components. Self-awareness, you know, knowing oneself, understanding oneself, accepting oneself. Uh, and, th and that is, uh, most of us think that that's quite easy. Actually, it's a lifetime uh, study <laughs> oneself because if you if you can really become self-aware knowing one's own strengths weaknesses patterns habits of attention unconscious biases and what makes us reactive then we have way more chance of being uh, effective in self-managing uh, the more self-aware the better the self-management and the self-management is the second basis for being an effective leader or commander. And self-management is about uh, taking the notions of observation and being able to effectively uh, step ahead of one's own emotions to control reactivity uh, and to know how to get the best out of oneself. I think those are, you know, so you think about those two as the, the strongest bases uh, for being a commander. And the, the important thing about self-awareness and self-management is if, if I can really know myself and manage myself, I've got way more chance uh, of understanding others with whom I'm working or others who might be working for me. So awareness of, of others is vital. Understanding that they're not me, that they have different perceptions, different realities. Uh, and once I'm understanding those, then I've got an opportunity about guiding and developing those people uh, so that they can do their very best for me or for the organization and indeed for themselves. Uh, and that process we can think about as relationship management, um, the effective uh, pulling and uh, working with and understanding others, whether they be whole teams or different organizations or uh, different people. None, none of that, by the way, is original. Uh, Dan Goleman uh, uh, popularized uh, the notion of emotional intelligence many years ago, uh, but it was actually Boyartzitz who, who did the original research, I seem to recall. And I think those are what comes to mind when you say the burden of command. I think it's, it's a joy and it's an opportunity. Um, and those four elements of emotional intelligence are really, really important. And I guess some listeners might be thinking, well, why is emotional intelligence important? <laughs> you know, surely you need you need some craft skills or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, and I think, well, yeah, that is true. Um, you do need some craft skills. But these days, most of us are reasonably well-educated, Um we, we get up to the position we're in, whatever position that is, because of our craft skills. And I, I think about the craft skills as problem A in any relationship or task issue. Uh, problem A is the task at hand, uh, the budget, the delivery, the implementation, the production, uh, the research, all of that kind of stuff where we spend 99% of our, our, our time. Problem B which is how are we getting on together have you got my back have i got your back do we have 
common beliefs and common approaches? Do we believe in this mutual endeavour? Problem B is the distinction that can make a real difference. And within problem B, how we're getting on together, then emotional intelligence for me is the is the crucial dimension. So uh, that that all comes out of that question about the burden of command. Yeah, no, I love it, and I love I love what you said there. That is an outstanding answer, and I love a lot of the things that you unpacked, especially the the knowing yourself and the emotional intelligence piece. You know, those are things that uh, they're, they're actually kind of the foundation of what, what I do at the Leadership Phalanx and going back to my training in the Marines. Uh, you know, one of our, our leadership principles was know yourself and seek self-improvement. Hmm. And, you know, you talk about Daniel Goleman and, and some of the other folks there. But what I like to do really is I like to infuse a lot of history whenever I can. And, and especially when it comes to leadership and things that we look at modern, I like Wherever I can, I like to go back to, to Sun Tzu, you know, and, and the reason is, is because it's one of the really first big texts on, on these topics. And even he knew the importance of emotional intelligence. He didn't use yes. those words. But when you yeah. look at, at the famous quote, you know, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of 100 battles. If you know yes. yourself, but not the enemy for every victory gained, you will suffer a defeat. And if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. That was emotional intelligence he was talking about, right? It was indeed, absolutely. And, you know, I think that's a very good description of of emotional intelligence, actually. And I really like that. I really do. Um, uh, and actually, it's in battle, in the, in the heat of the moment, actually. Uh, and whether the heat of the moment is on the battlefield or... Uh, dealing with the finance team or an investor or uh, uh, a client that's complaining, that is when all the elements really do need to come together to be able to be really effective in that heat of the moment. Right. And those can be really telling uh, telling moments in time. Yeah, 100%. And, and that's the thing, right, is because is I hear, you know, working with folks, I, I, I like, I'm a big fan of emotional intelligence myself. And, you know, you get some of the, the kind of command and control type of leaders uh, that, that are like, oh, that's just kind of new age hocus pocus type stuff. Well, no, it's not. It's been around for 2,600 years and effective leaders have really embraced emotional intelligence. And mm -hmm. I think that's a lot of kind of at the root of, of what I got from, from your book, uh, connecting with clients, is having that emotional intelligence to build those bridges and make those relationships stick, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, making those relationships stick in any team or with any client organization or with any individual client is the essence of building one's uh, own business or one's successful enterprise, whatever that might be. And it's very easy uh, for uh, relationships to become ruptured or disrupted. Um, and and actually working at it... Um, is uh, w way more important in many cases than actually working out the delivery issues, the problem A issues. Um, you know, if you can keep the relationship on an even keel, then actually, by and large, sorting out problem A should not be a problem. <laughs> you know, it right. re really shouldn't. I mean, yeah, sure, from time to time, you do need to fire a supplier because they've just, you know, not not uh, dealing with it properly um, uh, and something more fundamental has gone wrong. But by and large, 
work at problem B and it just saves time, energy and effort. Um, you know, I've, uh, <laughs> uh, there's a, um, before this interview, we talked about where, where we're uh, staying at the moment. And in the UK, I'm out of London and I have been since uh, lockdown uh, in a place we have in the country. And in the village, there's, uh, uh, and it is a small village, you know, it really is. Right. Um, uh, there's uh, a couple of uh, construction guys, and one of them is very, very good, but he's very poor at managing problem B. Mm. And I do the mag- managing a problem B for us both, because I think it's way better that I have somebody that I can know their work than take a risk right now and think well I could probably get somebody that manages problem B slightly better right now but there will become a time when if uh, if this guy doesn't improve in terms of the way he manages the relationship that will be it and and you know he, despite the fact his work is good he will uh, he'll be replaced well yeah and and what I like so you have uh, one of the chapters in the book is uh, call your clients every day and keep the other agencies away And I think that is great advice. And some people will be here that uh, may be hearing that and thinking, well, that's going to become annoying real quick. But I don't think your point is kind of what you're talking about here. Your point is not necessarily call and pester them. It's it's build that relationship, right? Exactly. Tell them that uh, they are important to you and that uh, when there's a life project or something uh, that you're thinking about them and uh um, you know, the worst thing is silence uh, or the void in communication because in the void in communication, then um, clients of any sort uh, tend to think the worst. They begin to sort of uh, focus on, well, why haven't I heard something? Or, you know, this this is the third time this has happened. And, and there's a in the uh, slight uh, tension that can build up in the not knowing, then... What happens is an emotional gap appears and, um, you know, that gap can quickly lead to a loss of uh, business uh, for any supplier. So I always think it's better to over-communicate. Now, in the book, I talk about call your clients every day and keep the other agencies away as a book, as a chapter title. Uh, A couple of things, that's referring to advertising agency uh, relationships with their clients but this applies in a gen- general theme of over communicate as a way to keep your clients happy um, and over communicating and checking in with them you know am I communicating too much too little it is worth uh, worth it because you're just demonstrating I care about your business now that's not a bad thing for any any client to hear I care about your business that's great you know Great, I'm I'm pleased. Makes me feel like uh, if you're doing that to me, that that you know you're on my side. You have my back. Yeah, no. Uh, again, I I love that 100. percent And and for some folks who are in leadership roles, uh, you know that client is the people that you are leading, right? I mean, it's it's just as important to keep your team that yeah. that same level of contact with your team because. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, I'd be interested to hear your experiences with this, but in, in my experiences, when I go into an organization and they have a problem, say, with, with gossip and rumor mills, it's because this, this piece hasn't been taken care of. And, and you've let these information gaps form 
And we know that, that uh, those information gaps are going to get filled in. Nature abhors a vacuum. And it's never filled in with good information, is it? It never is. You're so right, Earl. And, and the moment there's a void, it just, uh, the rumor mills, the unpleasant negative gossip starts and occupies the void and then spills over and actually occupies more than the void uh, because it now becomes the way we think. It operates by um, infecting the perceptual filters that we all have about what's going on here. Um, now, the negative voice in any organization is five times more powerful than the positive voice. So once it starts rolling, it, it, the amplification effect is is really tremendous. And of course, if we think about negative voices, that's why newspapers are sold and magazines are sold and TV channel news are sold, you know, and um, and, and made money in the past because that negative voice is kind of, you know, there's a bit of slightly addictive. People will kind of get off on it. Um, but if you're running a team or running an organization, that is not helpful at all. Uh, you know, the, the notion that, you know, people are going around chatting about stuff that is not real uh, is terrible. It's, it's absolutely a waste. And organizations that have that within their core, and by organization I mean, by the way, any, any group of people over two, right, two of you, um, then that becomes an energy drain and it, it becomes an absolute loss. Uh, and in terms of the focus, the energy and enthusiasm, uh, dissipates really quickly and it's very difficult to eradicate. So I, I would agree, over-communicate uh, internally and, and with clients. Uh, we all want to feel that we're important, whether we're an employee or a client. And um, yeah, over-communicate, over-communicate, over-communicate. You can't do enough, really. Yeah, no, I... I uh, I remember reading uh, William Urey, author of a bunch of books, but Get to Yes and, st- and some of mm-hmm. those. Yeah. But he once said that uh, just about the time you're tired of saying something, people are starting to hear you. Yes, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's exactly that. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's re- really, really important. No, I, I agree. I mean, communication is, I almost think the word over communication shouldn't exist because I'm not sure you can do it. Um, but on that point, you know, you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, the pandemic, it's still going strong. I think a lot of us thought we were on the verge of coming out of it and we're getting new variants pop up and mm. some areas are starting to relock down. And, uh, but you, you talk in the book about, uh, the impact of communications in a, in a virtual world, on us and our client relationships. So mm. how can we keep that going when we're, we're talking to more and more people uh, virtually than face-to-face? Well, it is, inc- it is incredibly difficult. Um, you know, we've all read articles speculating on why it's so exhausting to work online all the time. Um, but I... I, I I guess the important thing is to acknowledge the challenge of working online. And if we consider how we communicate face-to-face, generally I can, if I'm sitting opposite somebody, um, a supplier or a client or a team member, then 
I can take in their whole stance, their whole body, all their facial expressions, their movements and their gestures. And if we think about the elements of communication, you know, 7% of the actual words themselves, only 7%. Um, 38% is the, you know, intonation, the delivery of the voice, the pacing, uh, the structure the, of, of the syntax, uh, the up and down, the modulation of the voice. And that can add real emphasis and meaning to, to words. And by the way, words are very slippery. You know, when you write a word down or a phrase down, um, it's not always, it doesn't carry the same level of meaning that it will carry with an expressive voice. Uh, but then 55% of communication, in general terms, is the rest of the body, the shrug of the shoulders, uh, the movement of the legs, the arms, the slump of the uh, of the body, or the the speed of which we're uh, breathing, um, and some of the micro gestures that are visible when we're face to face. Now, you can take pretty much all of that away when you're working online, and what you have is a small screen. Um, uh, with a small face on it, or maybe a couple of small faces, and uh, uh, people don't have relationships with small faces on a the screen. They have relationships with real people in real life. Uh, but when, when we're facing e each other on a small screen, firstly, the buffering uh, degrades the voice, which we're relying on. Um, and it is very difficult to, to know when to speak and when not to speak, and the degree of emphasis that is being laid on a particular sentence to give it meaning um, we're missing the, the body language and so the the communication channels are not fully open and then more than that we as participants are having to work really hard to suck meaning and uh, the nuances out of the small screen and that's not how we're wired we're not wired to do that and sitting and looking at a small screen all day is uh, incredibly tiring because of this extra load and we also tend to speak about 15 percent louder on average when we're online that we would do face to face hmm. so accepting all of those things uh, as problems you know one of the best ways of dealing with it is to be really disciplined about uh, timing of meetings. I won't do a meeting that is longer than 50 minutes. Uh, I will insist on, on a break. And, I, and some people say, well, we need to have two hours. Okay, well, I'm going to take uh, a 15-minute break in between or a 20-minute break and, and we'll split this into two halves uh, uh, just because I need the refreshment. In a normal meeting, I can look around, look up, uh, look out of the window. My eyes can get stimulated. My thoughts can shift. But if I'm there all the time, online, face-to-face, -face, or worse, to a blank screen where I'm not even too sure that somebody's actually listening to me, then that is so demanding. So in terms of relationship building, it's more of a challenge. And personally, I've been you know, telling our teams that pick up the phone. You go, uh, call, the, call the cell uh, because uh, the voice is then definitely one-to-one -one. it's a much better quality and it's somehow slightly more intimate and it is that intimacy that we're often missing uh, <clears throat> in in our face-to-face -face communication 
the other thing I'm, I'm suggesting is to, to our teams is when you can, go and meet the clients when, the, when they are, you know, out of lockdown and we're out of lockdown, however brief that can be sometimes, is go take the opportunity while it, while it lasts. Uh, make the effort. Don't just uh, rely now or in the future or on just being online. Um, and in addition to that, try not to rely on email. You know, email is great for factual stuff, uh, but we all know that it carries enormous problems and boosting the email traffic is, is not necessarily a resolve. Uh, some of our team have been, um, uh, you know, using uh, voice messages as a way of communicating with each other across mm. time zones so that um, on WhatsApp they can leave a, uh, leave a voice message and that can be kind of nice and intimate and, and really effective. Um, so I don't have a, a panacea to the problem, but just to say there are some of the problems. Well, no, and I think you did a great job of unpacking those. It's like, you know, um, right now, you know, you and I are talking, we're recording over a service called uh, Clean Feed. Hmm. And, and one of the things you said there, uh, not sponsored by Clean Feed, but if you're looking to sponsor a podcast, here I am. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, one of the reasons I use them versus like a Zoom or whatever is, is yeah, I don't get the video aspect. Uh, but what you just said about the clarity of voice, I get this gets a much more clear capture of your voice. And, and I think I think is able to to get that uh, all those, those tones, the the uh, and, and all those things more clearly. So I can I can pick up on more of those cues in the voice than maybe with video and, you know, video gets choppy and things like that. Uh, so I, I like the fact that you put that. And I also like what you said about words and meanings. That's one of the whole reasons why I started this podcast. I noticed, you know, as, as a lot of, uh, and I don't know how it played out in the UK, but here in the US, we start getting a lot of, of former military folks writing books. You know, your Stanley McChrystals, uh, your, you know, your Navy SEAL types that have a lot of books mm. out. And, you know, they would talk about this burden of command in the books. And it started kind of picking up as, as corporate jargon, if you will. And I started asking folks, what does that, what does that phrase mean to you? Mm. And, you know, I, I would get some blank stares. And then I started talking about what that phrase actually means in, in military terms, which, uh, you know, is the, the responsibility, you know, and not just the responsibility for, for the soldier, airman, uh, sailor or Marine under your command, but the responsibility for, uh, their health. Uh, they're they're mm. feeding, uh, making sure they're getting sleep, making sure their socks are getting changed like they're supposed to so they don't have foot issues. Oh, and taking care of them so they can take care of their family so they can not have to worry about their family when they're on deployments. And it goes into this whole overarching thing of care, concern, taking care of mm. each other. And, and, you know, and, and I always get kind of a wide-eyed look whenever I go into all of these different elements of what burden of command actually means. And so that's why I started this podcast because I got that those words weren't meaning to most people what they should mean. Mm. Um, and um, mm. email, right? You know, <laughs> I, I love that you mentioned email uh, and, and communication in general, because um, I've tried to explain it to folks this way. And I'm curious how you feel about this, uh, this explanation, but I, I like to tell folks with communication, it's way more about what is heard than what is said. 
Mm. That's absolutely true. What, what, <laughs> and it is the meaning that somebody makes of it that is the critical thing. And with email, the ambiguity of email, um, the paucity of information will make sure that what is heard is not generally what is meant, unless it is a purely set uh, of uh, clear, simple, really simple instructions from A to B, or a list of things. But other than that, email is hopeless. <laughs> yeah, no. I miss the, the good old days when email first came out. We actually... Uh, uh, so this was in the in the mid to late '90s when when the Marines really started adapting uh, adopting email, mm. and uh, about once every six months or so, there were there was a message that would come out uh, from the Department of Defense that said email should not be considered an official form of communication mm. because yeah. of of all of these things the the misunderstandings that could occur. They were encouraging people to. Yeah, email is good for a couple of little things here, but make sure you're still talking to your your units. And and I think that's what you just said, right? Email has become the predominant form of communication, and that's just not a good thing. It is absolutely not a good thing. Um, and, and I want to go back to something you said uh, about the burden of command. And, and, you know, if I wrap that up, I think I, what I was hearing was that the duty, of, the burden of command is just a duty of care. And mm. I, I, I like that notion. Um, uh, I, I really do. I think that that resonates for me enormously, a duty of care. Um, you know, and I can, for me, a duty of care I have to my teams, uh, indeed to my family for that matter, um, to, to, to the employees, uh, to clients, um, to the environment, uh, um, and to the sort of social structure into which we're uh, interwoven in in our business in London and and in Boston for that matter, um, I, re I really do like that. Yeah, no, appreciate it. Yeah, it's uh, there was a great scene in the movie uh, We Were Soldiers with Mel Gibson, and they're they're sitting in a chapel before they deploy. Uh, one of his uh, one of his young lieutenants has just had their first kid. And they know that they're getting ready to go over to Vietnam. This was pre-war. We were going over mm -hmm. as, as uh, advisors. And in, in the scene, he, he's, he asks uh, how more uh, Mel Gibson's character. He says, how do you balance, you know, being a father, uh, being a family man uh, with being a soldier? And I loved his response. And I, this is something Hal Moore actually said. He goes, I think being good at one makes me better at the other. Mm. And, and it was it, to me, it was making that tie between being a good person and being mm. a good leader. They, they go hand in hand. You can't be good mm. at one and bad at the other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, that's very good. I like it. Yeah, I love it. So, um, Communication, right? Now, we've been really talking about this so far, uh, really from kind of like the internal uh, aspect. Uh, but it's important to hear, you know, kind of what our customers are telling us, too. And you kind of mentioned this with uh, uh, the, the, the worker uh, in the village there. But uh, you've you got a chapter here titled, Everything is Okay. Is your client, is your client telling the whole truth? 
diagnostic <laughs> inquiry. And I like that term. I hadn't heard it before, diagnostic inquiry. But but I think that's something that we really need to do a lot more, right? Is because people don't really like to give it's kind of a weird dichotomy, right? If if somebody can go on Yelp and give you one star and rant and rave, they're gonna do it. But if they're talking to you in person, people are a lot more hesitant to give you the the full truth of your service, right? That's correct, I think. Um, well, part of the reason is, if not the whole, almost all the reason, is the fact that we're socialized not to tell the truth to each other. <laughs> uh, right from a very early age when, you know, maybe, uh, you know, you say to your grandma, oh, you know, when you're a little, really little, little, little kid, you know, um, preschool, and you say, Grandma, why have you got hairs on your chin? Or, you know, Granddad, why, 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 why does your breath smell? Whatever it is. Right. Um, uh, and our parents say, well, you can't say that. Don't say that. You know, Earl, you can't say that to your grandma. <laughs> She'll be really hurt. We get, you know, and if you, it, what happens is that that happens in many different ways. Um, over and over and over again and that's part of the natural human tendency of keeping us together in a common herd that where there aren't fallouts that are, you know and of course going back to you know the formation of humankind and how it cooperated in teams and uh, small groups of people um, uh, whether they be around one central village or in a larger area, that importance of being together, of not having too much of a fallout. Of course, we learned this notion of socialization and just getting along and not telling everybody exactly what we feel all the time. And when, um, and I'm thinking about organizations, when um, anybody's working an organization with a supplier, for example, there may also be some organizational um, issues that it's important uh, for the organization not to want to go to the supplier. So the supplier is always going to be um, trying to get to the truth um, through a haze of self-editing that goes on for uh, historical reasons or reasons of socialization, and then uh, also fighting their way through to find out what's going on within their client organization that might adversely or positively affect their future. So there's a lot of stuff to get around. <clears throat> and just by asking a client, you know, how things going, um, tends to get a pretty, you know, positive uh, or at least a brush off answer of great. Yeah, it's fine. You know, and even if you get to, well, how's our service going? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, it's good. Any complaints? No, no, it's all fine. Now, there might be a lot going on, but you'll never hear about it by asking those kind of questions. Uh, you can go out for, you know, uh, go out for a beer or coffee, uh, sit down at a table informally and just say, well, tell me, Jack, or, or how, you know, what do you think of our service or our team or whatever? Now, there's a couple of problems. One is most of us aren't trained to listen effectively and to really stop and pause. Um, and the other is this notion of, well, you're not going to hear the truth. So diagnostic inquiry is based on what doctors do. Now, in the United Kingdom, um, we have a, a system called the National Health Service. Uh, so we get our medical treatment free unless we want to pay and 
Um, and we, we do have the option of doing that. But within the NHS, when you go to see a doctor, uh, we call them a general practitioner here. Um, uh, if you've got a problem, uh, you get 12 minutes on average, uh, or rather they get 12 minutes with you. It might have even gone down to 11 minutes, actually. Who knows? With COVID, maybe it's down to 10 now. I really don't know. <clears throat> but in that time, they need to make an accurate assessment of uh, their patient. And it's got to be accurate, and they've got to work out. And often patients present with different issues. And they've got to work out the importance of that and then the treatment resolve. And so diagnostic inquiry is takes on the, the whole similar notion. And I like to start uh, big. So if I'm uh, checking in with a client, uh, I will say, you know, I'm really interested, Earl, in your experience of us right now. Um, now, that is a big question. By the way, as I say that, my arms are outstretched in either direction. And I might even do that with the client to suggest them at an unconscious level or out of awareness level that I'm talking about the big picture here. Now most clients will go oh, I don't know what you mean or, or well you know um, I, I don't know you know and and I will just ask the question oh, I'm just really keen to know you know what's your experience of us. I'm not asking for specific feedback positive and negative I want to know about their experience of us and what comes to mind I'm not going to say about our service I'm not going to say about our staff because that's leading them I want to know the big picture now if I think they feel negatively about us because maybe we've made a mess up or maybe my uh, client system for tracking uh, uh, the relationship says there's a problem I'm going to start after the initial comment Whatever they say, I'm going to hold all of what they say and uh, uh, and put that down to, to refer to later. And if they say nothing anyway, I'm still going to go along and say, so tell me, you know, tell me about your uh, worst experiences of us right now. Now, by inviting um, or... or uh, the ways in which we disappoint you is probably a better expression. Tell me about the ways in which we disappoint you. Um, and that allows them to know that you are open, I am open to hearing the very worst. Um, and so with a, with a client that's reactive or has a problem with us, um, I'm, I'm looking for that downside. And the moment I start getting the downside, so we didn't deliver on time, I want to know a bit more because just didn't deliver on time or whatever the problem is doesn't tell me enough. I want to know what was the emotional and other impact. So when we didn't deliver on time, what did that mean to you? All right. So you, you weren't able to make a presentation to your CEO. Okay. So what happened then? Oh, so you 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 were rebuked for not delivering on time as well and you missed your pay rise or your bonus or whatever it is okay so now we know we've got a real problem because we missed something by a day let's say and uh, that something meant that our client couldn't make a presentation to the ceo and mr bonus or mr pay rise as well now that is really really serious mm -hmm. which we could have missed all of that and i do that and say, okay, so tell me more. Tell me what else, what else, what else. And until there's nothing more, what else is? And I will double check. Tell me, is there anything else I should know? No. And then I'm just going to reprise back 
um, what I've heard. And then I'm going to say, so tell me, thinking about uh, your experience of us, what are the positives uh, of your experience of us? Now, I particularly want to do that, even if I'm not really interested. And I want to do that because the client is now uh, extroverting uh, some positive stuff. And in effect, what they're doing is he or she is actually um, changing the way that he or she feels about us. You know, we've got rid of the wound and now we're making it better. And, you know, they will be listening to their voice. So if the last thing in the conversation that they hear is themselves telling me about the good service we've done or the positive bits of the service we've done, then that's great. So that's one way of doing diagnostic inquiry with somebody that feels really negative. Uh, the straightforward one is just to say, tell me about your experience of us. Um, and then positive and negative, just to keep recording what's going on and really make sure that I understand the implications of both. And now, now I've got my whole list of what do we need to keep doing and why is that important and what do we need to, to change uh, or, or rectify and the implications of that. And I've got a very simple list. Now that takes about five minutes. I've spent more longer, probably longer explaining it than actually doing it. Right. And you will walk away. I walk away with nuggets of gold. And so that is diagnostic inquiry. And I think it is really, really important. No, I agree, especially when you're talking about like opening up and, and leading with, uh, you know, the disappointments, right? And, and inviting that because a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this too, even though I, I know better. Whenever I, I, a company sends me a survey, um, I, I don't really feel that they want to hear the truth. Uh, yeah. I, I feel that they want to hear, uh, hey, everything's going good. Uh, everything, you know, the, the kind of the shallow, get me, you know, let, let me just yeah. answer the question, move on. But but by leading with, the, I like the way you did that because... It's, it's refreshing to hear a person or an organization want to hear, like verbalize, hey, I want to hear the bad stuff because I want to improve. Mm, and, exactly. and that's a huge, <laughs> that, that changes the whole dynamics of, of that specific relationship, right? Absolutely. It can, it can be transformative in relationships. And because it encourages the truth, it enables a much more authentic uh, relationship between any supplier um, and the, and their clients, and and that then becomes uh, really important as a way then of monitoring well, what's happening in the relationship in the future. It gets much easier actually to to manage the relationship. No, Paul, I love that. That is great. Uh, yeah, listeners, look, we've been chatting here for for a good while here, and I just want to be honest with you. We haven't really gotten through a third of the book, and I don't want you to, to hear that and be kind of, oh my gosh, this is a, a great book with great content. It's very well put together, uh, connecting with clients for stronger, more rewarding, and longer lasting client relationships. Um, but there is a piece kind of a little bit closer towards the end that I would be remiss. Actually, this is for me because I love this topic. Um you talk about optimism bias, and uh, I, I love that. I remember uh, picking up the book uh, by by Tally Sherratt, mm. uh, reading through that, and it hit me, right? Um, 
I'm trying to find it here. You say something about how you can feel good and still make terrible decisions is the, the, the chapter title. Um, yeah. How to feel good and make poor decisions. And it, and it hit me living in the U S and I know a lot of my listeners will, will, will get this. This is how we get uh, uh, Congress with a 70% disapproval rating. Yet we keep reelecting the same people, right? It's because <laughs> this optimism bias kicks in and it helps us say, well, yeah, everybody else stinks, but my person. So I'm going <laughs> to, <laughs> right. Exactly. Everybody else thinks, but not mine. Uh, and I think, uh, optimism bias, it's a terrible affliction. Um, and, you know, I, I love it. I, and you mentioned, uh, a great author. Um, you know, this delusion that we have, uh, I seem to recall there's something like 85% of us are likely to rate ourselves in the top 50%, uh, in our ability to get along with it, with others. Yeah. Um, and if I'm right in memory, 25% of us are likely to rate ourselves within the top 1%. Um, you know, and even university professors are deluded about their, and we often think about them as being pretty unbiased, are, are really deluded. Look, I think optimism bias is pretty natural. You know, we're the uh, only race, as far as we know, that, that um, wakes up every day knowing that they're going to die. Um, so there is a kind of need for, for optimism and to, and to think, well, to Yesterday was a really terrible day, but today is going to be better. And I think that is really important. But this is where the self-awareness piece comes in, that actually we need to be able to mediate that uh, that uh, bias, uh, which can distort reality, um, whether it's in politics uh, and who we support, or whether it, indeed it's in our uh, on our daily dealings. And... You know, I think the antidote to optimism bias, uh, which I don't write in the book, but uh, I think is really important, is a healthy dose of uh, skepticism uh, about what might uh, happen. Not cynicism, but skepticism. What if that doesn't happen? Um, what would be a different point of view? Because optimism really does distort reality. And it does make us prone to poor judgment it does lead to, you know, really minimal uh, reflection um, uh, and shallow thinking about ourselves, our ability, uh, and what's possible and, and what might be possible in our organization. And the consequences are enormously wasteful and can be really disappointing. So for me, a, a healthy dose of um, of uh, skepticism is is the answer to something which to which we are all susceptible to um there is no question about it uh optimism bias unfortunately is a challenge for us all ah uh, that is the truth uh you know it it, help, it helps it helps us in a lot of ways as you pointed out uh but but it also does us uh, quite a bit bit of a disservice if we're not aware that it's going on. And I think uh, that's why I like the skepticism, because I think that's it. That that helps you kind of, uh, I'll use the term calibrate uh, for, for reality. You know, I know my optimism's going on. I got to temper it with a little bit of skepticism. So I get a little closer to what reality actually is. Yes, uh, that's, that's correct. Now about 9%, maybe 11, between 9 and 11%, 
have a slight pessimism bias, so we can't say that the whole the whole world is uh, has a, has an extreme optimism bias. Um, um, but the majority have, yeah. Right, right. Well, Paul, this has been a great discussion. We were sitting here about forty-five minutes. Uh, we we have touched a lot of the book, but there's still a lot left. And again, folks, I promise you, you need to go pick up a copy of Connecting with Clients for Stronger, More Rewarding, and Longer Lasting Client Relationships. Um, but Paul, uh, before we before we uh, kind of close out here. I know we talked about a lot of stuff, but is there anything that you really want to leave listeners with before we go? Well, I think that there are two things, actually. One, one okay. just to say about the book. Um, it is about connecting with clients, but it is about personal development as well. And I've written it. It took me three efforts to write it, or three goes to write it. And it's written to be an easy read. Um, and we've touched on a very little about it um, in here because of the... the um, yeah, anyway, you can keep on diving in and diving out. It's an easy read. Um, um, but beside that, I, I just wanted to say that the biggest piece, I think, for us all is developing self-awareness. Uh, and I think that's the most important thing. We touched on that right at the beginning. And uh, I encourage everybody to really learn about themselves. I, I find um, Myers-Briggs uh, as a system for uh, developing awareness good. But most most importantly, I think, uh, a model of personality called the Enneagram, um, which means nine points on the graph in, in Greek. The Enneagram, when well taught um, as a process for self um observation is probably the most powerful i don't think i've ever said that in any other interview but but um i would certainly say that helped save my marriage and and has led to a much deeper understanding of myself my colleagues and my family over the last 20 years so i would say that's the most profound thing i touched just a bit on it in the book but um there we go it's a commercial for a break for a model of personality called the enneagram uh, really to help self develop self-awareness. No, I love it. I, I, uh, I've not had a chance to go through that one yet. I, I, I I'm always a little hesitant about Myers-Briggs. I, I like mm. it. It's a yeah. good tool. Uh, but I find it's too easily influenced based off of yes. where you are at that point in time. Yes. It's contextual. The Enneagram is much more profound, uh, and, uh, the best way of learning about it is in the narrative tradition. That means, um, you know, we are all experts in our type, um, um, but it is an, an exquisitely accurate uh, system, which I, I, I used as a psychotherapist, both with individuals and couples, and I use in an organizational context, and I found it to be um, superbly helpful. But most importantly, it's for me to, to keep a track on me and to understand me. I love it. I love it. I have to look into that one. I've done a disc profile, uh, which I, I like disc as well. Uh, but I have to look into this Enneagram. Oh. I've, I've seen it come up a lot uh, lately in discussions. So I'm going to have to get a little bit more diligent about that. So thank you for, for uh, kind of that, mm -hmm. that uh, pub there for it. I'll, I'll definitely look into that. Um, so for our listeners, you know, again, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know how anybody hasn't uh, been a part of this conversation for this last 50 minutes and not uh, you know, taking a lot out of it, not felt this desire to want to learn more about the book and, and who you are and what you do. 
Uh, so how can they do that? What's a good way for folks to find out more about you and the book? Uh, that's really simple. Uh, go to paulcowan.com. That's P-A-U-L-C-O-W-A-N.com. And there's a website. Um, and there's bits on the book, bits on me, um, and uh, some blogs, and a way of getting in contact as well. Um, so paulcowan.com is the best way of getting hold of me outstanding well uh, i'll make sure that stuff gets in the show notes so people can just click on paulcowan.com and go straight to you uh paul thank you very much for being with us for you know this last 50 minutes or so this has just been an absolute amazing discussion and i just thank you for having it with me well thank you so much for the invitation Oh, I love it. And folks, uh, you've been with us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this conversation uh, that way. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, you know to reach out at burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. Uh, keep doing your part, rating, subscribing, sharing, reviewing, doing all those great things that you have been doing uh, so my, my guests like Paul can get their message spread further, uh, get into more ears, and make the difference in the world that uh, I know that, that he wants to make. Uh, that's a great role that you play, and you all have been doing a good job with it. So thank you for that. And with that, I look forward to speaking with you all again in the next episode. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric Acid. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric acid.